0: Welcome to this week's episode of For What It's Worth and our series, Pass the Jam. This is part two of Lucky Time and the inaugural passing of the jam from artist-in-residence Douglas Cameron to our next artist, Tracy Jones. Last week, we dove into the heart of Lucky Time, Tracy Jones's most recent album. Tracy provided us with insight into the profound meaning behind the title track and the album as a whole. His songs, rich with narrative and emotion, serve as a commentary on finding hope and positivity amid global upheaval and personal challenges. Tracy's belief in the power of music to offer solace and perspective during turbulent times is a poignant reminder of art's transformative nature. All good art is intentional. It does not happen by accident, and it reflects deep meaning gleaned from the personal experience of the artist. It is what the artist sets out to express, to convey. It is a gift of the soul of the artist to the audience. And good art leaves the listener, the audience, subtly changed as a result of the experience. We concluded part one of the episode by introducing our current artist-in-residence, Douglas Cameron. So we'll pick up from where we left off. For what it's worth... Is there
1: some physical thing that I hand over and say, here, man, here's the jam.
0: (laughs) No, it's more metaphorical, (laughs) Douglas. (laughs) Well, actually, that's how the whole series did come about, and it did involve a pot of jam.
1: It's so interesting to sit and listen to the conversation that you two guys have had. I recognize that I am just a little bit earlier in the time frame of everything that you were talking about. And the fact that we... Both were largely in Toronto, although I didn't grow up in Toronto, but the experiences that I had were just a little bit different than the experiences that you had, and yet very similar. So for me, listening to you talk, there were two areas, and one is is your actual record, which I have some questions about, although you answered some of them in your conversation. But some of the things that, like you talked about the church thing, and it was so interesting to hear that because a lot of my early musical experiences as a kid were at church where I sang in the choir and I sang solos and things like that and I sat and listened to hymns and I had not thought of this for a long time but when I heard you talk about it it made me think about it that sitting in a church environment listening to hymns is an incredible musical education, and especially from the point of view of what is a song, how does a song work, and also in a communal sense because you have a whole bunch of people singing together. I don't know if there's quite the same experience now that people have, but certainly as a kid, every Sunday, there we were sitting in the balcony singing these hymns. And in my world, and at a certain point in my musical education, I'll call it, I realized they're all the same thing. They're using all the same, one, four, five, and occasionally we're going to go to two. And then after two, we're going to go up to four and then maybe five. And for me, that resonates so much in terms of my own sort of musical world.
2: Mm -hmm. It's funny. It's not something I talk about very much of but I think a lot of us back in the day, our parents made us go to church. Church is an oral tradition, right? That's what it's about. There is a form to any religious service. It is very call and response driven. And all of those things are elements about what makes good songwriting as well, whether it's the congregation engagement or the audience engagement. They're the same thing. We're talking about, I'm singing something, you're giving it back to me. Yeah, we might not be holding the mic out going, everybody, hello, Cleveland. But I think that was formative for me in terms of where I started. And I grew up at a time where church wasn't quite so square they were moving from hymns with organs and a cantor at the front of the church to the they called it the folk mass you were hearing songs from Jesus Christ Superstar being played at church i even remember going to one service up north and i'm pretty sure somebody played yellow submarine because they had convinced the uh, the minister <laughs> that uh, the yellow submarine was really a metaphor for heaven and god and what we all want to be when we grow up it was a really groovy time in me then it wasn't the 60s this was the 70s so I think it did make a difference. I think it did make a difference in terms of where we all come from, the traditions that you grew up in.
1: And so then, in the timeline, you talked about when your worlds merged the music and advertising. And I had a brief period of time, and I would say it would be in the early 80s, spilling mid-80s, where your world was late 80s, early 90s. Mine was late 70s, early 80s. But I actually did a little bit of work in jingle writing for a very brief period of time, about two weeks. (laughs) I made more money in that two weeks than I'd made in the entire year the year before. It really blew my mind. But you also mentioned Harris Cole and Wild. I once auditioned for a commercial. Oh, that's great. It was my one and only audition for a commercial. And I walked in, and the three of them were there. And I knew them all a little bit. I didn't know them very well. They knew me well enough to call me to come... And they said, okay, sound like Bruce Springsteen. And I went, I don't really do that. And they said, no, come on, sound like Bruce Springsteen. And I went, I don't. And I didn't get the job because I couldn't sound like Bruce Springsteen. But I always thought that was funny. And the fact that you had that mesh with them.
2: I think the cool thing with that experience was as Music Houses Go, those guys came from a band background. That's where I met Jerry, who produced my album. Jerry's lineage goes back to the prog rock days of the early 70s, playing in bands like Hawkwind and playing with, like Larry Gowan and Alfie Zappacosta. I think that they rooted so much of what they did in good songwriting. And it was an honor to get to work with them as much as I did. And Jerry's just also happens to be one of the nicest humans
1: on the planet. Such a lovely guy. So then this leads to my next. I'm on a roll here. I'm walking down a big highway into this whole conversation. So when I listen to your record, and I have to admit, I have to listen to it more, but I was listening in the car. I always listen to stuff in the car. And the first thing that hit me, so... I'm looking at you, you're sitting in your home studio there, and I can relate because of the way that recording has evolved from big rooms Mm -hmm. with tons of musicians in it to somebody in a basement. And all the recording that I do now is done like that. I rarely have another musician come in unless it's somebody that I'm specifically working with. I listened to your record and I thought, holy cow, this sounds so big. And I'm thinking to myself wait a minute, are these real drums? Does anybody still do that? And I thought, no, these can't be real drums. These have to be sample drums. And then I listened, I thought, wow, but yeah, they're like really good drums. And then these big guitars. Mm -hmm. I'd love to
2: talk about that. We had booked some studio time to do on the floor sessions if we needed it, but ended up not having to. In terms of the recording process, most of my stuff I recorded here, I actually spent some time with an engineer though to learn how to really properly record vocals especially what levels to record at how to set all that stuff up so I recorded my vocals and my guitar tracks here I've got a I've got lots of stuff around me but it's not like I've got neumann's and all kinds of expensive mics and things like that but it's amazing what you can do now and everything is real so the guitars all the acoustic guitars are real all the drums are real so Dave langeth has a recording room and that is happening a lot these days right we're able to go in and we gave him the songs to work with and help direct the sessions but we really gave him the space to play within it and he delivered just unbelievably great sounding drum tracks and in some cases he would give us a two-channel reference mix just to say here's how I'm envisioning what the drums sound like and in some cases they were so good that we just wanted to use those because his taste is so good he knows his instruments so well and he's playing beautiful sonar drum kits so yeah everything's real on it there were some people that i really wanted to have work on the album with me paul reddick and the kyle ferguson from the sidemen play on the last song on the album which is called one more song it's a song about my brother who passed away and Paul and Kyle flew in. Paul came here, recorded his harmonica. I put a Fender basement in my storage cupboard. Mic'd it all up, did all of that kind of stuff. And he just played some beautiful things to that. And then Kyle, I gave him the tracks and he recorded at his place. And he played call and answer as if he and Paul were sitting in the studio together because they played together for 25 years. And then there were two solos that I wanted. I had an imagining of what I wanted them to sound like. And the person that I really wanted to have come in was a guy named Sean Kelly. And Sean is an incredible guitar player, an incredible educator, an incredible musician, best-selling author. He was with Nelly Furtado for years and currently does all kinds of stuff with people like Lee Aaron and Carol Pope and stuff like that. And he just came over and grabbed my my Les Paul Jr., plugged it into a Marshall and turned everything up way too loud and just ripped some wicked solos on rise and fall so the contributions by
1: those people really made it i know in terms of the way that people record now that's such a thing and it is quite amazing to me because when i started doing things everything was done in big studios there were some smaller studios and of course everybody had these little four track recorders and things like that but The idea of a drummer sitting in their own little space and recording things, all of that was just so unheard of. It's quite remarkable. The other thing that I wondered, and I have to ask this, because you mentioned Paul Reddick and Kyle, and I think those guys are amazing. I think Paul Reddick is a kind of genius shaman harmonica player. And I think that Kyle plays electric guitar more like Robert Johnson than any guitarist I've ever heard.
2: Paul is a Juno Award winning artist and I really do believe he's a national treasure. He redefines blues as a beautiful language that is rooted in folk singing and country. He blends it all so seamlessly and so effortlessly and when you see them play together the synergy between Paul and Kyle is unlike anything you can imagine. It's like they are on this wavelength together and You sit in a room listening to just the two of them playing together and you close your eyes and you are lost. You are just gone. You're in another place. It was such an honor that they agreed to come and play on that one particular song as well because it's such an
1: important song to me. I'm going to give a closer listen to your album and play it as I drive
0: around in my car. As always, thank you both. It's great for me as the host of the show to listen to people that have the background and experience and musical knowledge that you both have. More important, it's great for our listeners, some of whom may be aspiring musicians or just hacks like me trying to pick up a few tips. Before we do the final passing of the jam, I have a couple of questions. This show is designed partly to help aspiring musicians figure out where they want to go in the music industry. And you've both talked a lot about how it's changed since your early days getting into the business. I wanted to ask you, Tracy... What's the best piece of advice you were ever given with respect to pursuing a career in the music business? Don't. (laughs) Um, No, I, you know what? I, um, I think it would all add up
2: to be authentic. Don't worry about chasing trends, find your voice. And I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned over the years from that advice is to do the work. I'm hard on myself as a songwriter. I really work hard when I'm working on a song, I sweat out the lyrics, especially. Some people are groove-driven, music-driven, first and foremost. They don't really care about the words that they're hearing in a song. For me, if I don't believe the words that I'm hearing, I have trouble connecting with the song. And when I think about all of the songwriters and musicians that I like, I think that's a common thread with them, is that they do sweat it out. There's another thing, the advice that I would give a young musician now that I've only learned over the last few years is... We tend to not like to practice over and over and over again. Even working in the business world, we don't like to rehearse before a presentation. We want to keep it spontaneous. But the more I got into this album and the harder Jerry pushed me to play and play and play and play, I realized I went from being able to do things in 10 takes to doing it the first take, because you just really need to keep your connection to the instrument and you should play every day because keeping those synapses connected in your brain just gives you so much more confidence and so much more fluidity. and means you're not fighting yourself. To make that long answer short, I think get out of your own way would really be an important piece of advice I would give every musician, whether you're Just getting started and when you're writing your first stuff, just move the impediments out of your way that might be holding you back from achieving your potential. Those might be physical limitations. It might be that you need to practice more. It might mean you need to learn the neck of the guitar. But it also might be your self-doubt. And the best way to get over that is to just practice and practice and always play and always keep singing. I've always joked that I'm a guitar player who sings, not a singer who plays guitar. But in the course of working on this album and in the course of writing this album, My voice is in a better place than it's ever been. My youngest son actually even said, how is it that you're getting older, but your voice is getting stronger? I think it's just because of practice and repetition and really sticking with it. And by doing that, you also fall in love with your own voice. It sounds funny when I say that, but a lot of us don't necessarily find our full projection of ourselves because we're insecure. We're, am I getting away with something here? And I think that as you play your songs over and over again, and you sing them everywhere from in the car to when I'm out for a walk or whatever, I'm singing my stuff. I sing my stuff to myself all the time. It's that old saying, dance like nobody's watching. I think you got to do that. I think you just got to keep playing and singing. It's a wonderful way to erase your self-doubt because you realize you can do it. And you are valid. You have the right to your voice. 99.9% Of People don't make things, and that's not a shot at other people, but if you actually have that spark in you to create something out of nowhere called a song, well, what a gift, and and what a responsibility we have
0: to do that. That's a good thing. We're sharing something good. It's part of the lucky time. Yeah, that's a great perspective. I want to pick up on a couple of things you said. Firstly, your comment about doing the work honing your playing, singing, and so forth at the front end so that you reap the benefits when you sit down and record. You know, this is a lesson that can be applied across many fields of endeavor. In business, for example, spending the time at the front end to hone your strategy, to truly understand the root cause of a problem you're trying to solve and the context under which you're operating means that when you execute your solution, there's a much greater likelihood of success. Secondly, your point about self-confidence and eliminating self-doubt. When you were talking about the song, We Rise, We Fall, and your producer said, I want you to take it to C," that really resonated with me because it's one of the things that I struggle with in my own singing as well. I'm afraid to let my voice go. I convince myself it's out of my range and I can't do it and therefore can't play the song, and it's really self-defeating. One of the things we talk a lot about on the show is the art and craft of songwriting, And this, I think, is what you're really talking about. So let me ask you, how much of what you do is art, in other words, free-flowing inspiration, and how much of it is craft, where you really focus on doing the work? I think it's a pretty decent blend.
2: Everybody has their own process for the way they write. I always keep a journal handy. And what happens for me often is a couple of phrases will come out. A couple of thematic ideas might come out that I'll write down. And then by the time... I've got 10 or 12 pages of those. I'll find a groove, like the Only Love Groove, for instance, and I'll start to look through those pages, and I'll go, oh, wait a minute, this thought connects really lovely with this thought, and then they start to come together, and the stories build themselves. That's one way I write. I've had many times, though, where I've sat down and a song has come to me in one sitting, just from start to finish. The first song on my first album, which is called For You, it came so fast and so easy that I dismissed it, thinking it couldn't be any good because it happened too easy. Right. But usually that's the root of it. Coming up with musical ideas is not really a challenge for me. I'm always thinking about stuff, I'm always noodling, but it's finding that match between things that are on your mind and things that are on your fingers on, on a guitar and saying, How do these things all relate to each other? And then the next thing you know, you've started to get something. And that's where. Doing it as a solo artist versus a band situation, the recording process comes in as well. If I had been doing it with a band, which I've done that before, it would have been a very different album because the dynamic would have been very different. This was me being allowed to swim around in my own muck and figure out what I was doing as I was doing it without holding anybody else up or imposing my beliefs. I'm currently working with some people to put together a band show of this album. And what I've said explicitly is, No, I don't want to sample everything off the album. I don't want to do that. Another guitar player is going to be playing on it with me. And I've said, I'm not looking for you to copy what I did. There are some signature things that I think need to be there. But I want this to be your song. Mm. Terry's going to be playing some keyboards with me. I want these to be his songs, too. And if you're just prescriptive and say, play my album, great. I can go and hire musicians to do that. But that's not what I want. I want this to be an ongoing process of musical camaraderie with people. And so whether I'm doing it as a trio with acoustic drums in a small room kind of situation or whether I'm ramping it up to a whole band, I want people to have room to find themselves in these songs because that to me is what
0: music is really about. It's a communal experience. Great. That's a great concluding point. The rationale behind this series is that we hope it will generate some musical synergies between the guests who have appeared on the show. I know Douglas Cameron and Blair Packham have played together, as well as Oliver McQuaid and Heather Gimmel since they've been on the show, and I'm hoping that this leads to other collaborative endeavors in the future. Our aspirational goal at some point is to bring together all our guests and do something really special, a live show and or a record. We're at the point now where we've officially passed the jam on from our current artist-in-residence, Douglas Cameron, to Tracy Jones. Douglas, a fond farewell. It has been a real pleasure having you on the show and playing your music for all the intros and outros to our episodes. I really appreciate both your time and the music. It's been great. Tracy Jones, welcome. You are now the current artist in residence and holder of the jam until the next round. So again, I really appreciate both of you joining me today.
2: I really appreciate it too. What an honor to be here and and thank you for giving me so much of
0: your time and uh, listening to me rant on. Well, the jam has been officially passed from Douglas Cameron to Tracy Jones. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. To me, a good interview is one where I can develop a connection with my guest, where it becomes less of an interview and more of a conversation. And most important, one where I am changed as a result of that conversation. Tracy Jones gave me a lot to think about when it comes to motivation, intentionality and purpose and his stories inspired me to reflect more deeply about the transformative power of music. For what it's worth. I'm going to be taking a break from the show next week to go on a bit of a ski around with two of my oldest childhood friends. Should be a blast. But we'll be back the following week for another episode of For What It's Worth.